And I was reminded this week in preparation for this morning's sermon that uh, the world doesn't read the Bible. The world reads us as Christians. And so it's our holy responsibility to our, immerse ourselves in God's word so that we can then live the word out in the world. Because I'll tell you what gives God and Christianity an awful name. It's people who sit in here on Sunday, claim to be Christians, and then go out and not live what God's word says. And the world wants nothing to do with Christianity if Christianity is exactly the same as the world. They want something different. They want truth. I don't think it's any... um, coincidence then that we're studying a book that highlights men of character, men with unwavering commitment to God's word, to God's truth, to obeying God, and those are the men who God chooses to impact the world. And those are the men who God chooses to work his purposes and his mission through to bring light in dark places. And so I'm super excited about this morning. And uh, as of a few weeks ago, I was going to be teaching on Daniel chapter 3, which is one of my favorite chapters in all of the Bible. But you know what? We live in New York. (laughs) And by God's sovereign hand, a snow fell. And now I'm in Daniel chapter 2. And I am so thankful because, uh, I got to tell you, if I'm honest, I've kind of breezed past this chapter, looking forward to some of those big stories that we learned when we're kids, and I've never really dove into Daniel chapter 2 and studied it, and God, like, uh, opened my eyes this last few weeks, and and, uh, I believe that this chapter is going to be an encouragement to us as a church this morning, Uh, and I was at a leadership meeting yesterday with Heather Thompson, and she said, if all else fails, throw Chad under the bus. So so I think we're going to be great this morning. Um, It is the day of the Super Bowl. Pastor Matt's not here because he's at a conference speaking to men uh, for a local church, which is really cool. Um, But Pastor Matt, if you're going to listen to this at a later date, I'm really, really sorry that the Eagles are not in the Super Bowl anymore. <laughs> Matt Turgeon, you said uh, tonight thousands, millions of people will be worshiping uh, their teams in the Super Bowl, and, but this morning we want to come together and worship the God of the world, right? The, tr- the one true and holy God. We're going to worship him together. Um, that, I'm going to be honest, that's a lot easier when the Patriots are playing in the Super Bowl. <laughs> um. No more Patriots jokes. Maybe a couple more. But in honor of Chad, we're going to be in Dan the Man chapter 2 this morning. Little Danny boy. Um, Daniel chapter 2, if you've got your Bible, turn there this morning. It's, it's kind of a long chapter, and so I'm going to break it up into three different sections. Right? We're going to read the first section, and we're going to talk about that. We're going to get as far as we can get, um, and, uh, and if we don't get through it all, we just won't get through it all. That'll be that, right? Um, we'll do the best we can. And 
From what we've seen over the last few weeks is uh, we see Daniel, a man of integrity and character. Unwilling to bend to societal pressures, unwilling to waver in his commitment to God, uncompromising in his commitment to virtue and righteousness, Pastor Matt said last week in highlighting his uh, commitment to, to righteousness and faithfulness, he said some of the greatest things we will see God do will begin with small, heartfelt commitment to the Lord. Daniel's gifts are about to be illustrated in a very powerful and a very mighty way. Right? Because we remember in Daniel 1.17, Daniel had the gift of interpreting dreams, right? dreams and visions. And now we're about to be blown away with how God uses Daniel, not only his faithfulness and uncompromising commitment to him, but also the gifts and the passions and abilities that he's given Daniel. We're about to see those fleshed out and used for his purposes. And there's two main things, and one is just that. One is... Um, two main things as we look at this, right? One is the man that God chooses to use in times of crisis. But then the other main thing, which is like this umbrella over the whole book, and that's this, that in spite of present appearances, God is still in control. So we're in Daniel chapter two, and I'm gonna read the first 11 verses with you. Um, in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that, he, that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. Verse 7, They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know this with certainty that you are trying to gain time because you see that the word for me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, there is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand for no great and powerful king has asked such a great such a thing of the magicians or enchanters or Chaldeans. Let's pray together. Father, you are good. Father, thank you for being in control. Father, thank you for being someone that, that is worthy of our worship. And this morning, as we look at your word and as we dive in, I pray that you will illuminate your scriptures. I pray that you will give us an awe and a wonder for your word and how to... Um, to know more about you and your character and then how to live like you want us to live, God. I thank you for your word because it's true and it's holy. I thank you for um, this morning and this church and be with us, God. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. 
So this chapter begins with King Nebuchadnezzar. He's having dreams, right? Dreams, plural. Probably not just one dream, maybe few dreams, night after night. It says the dreams troubled him so much that he was losing sleep over it. It actually says later in the chapter, verses 29 and 30, we know why he's having dreams. It says that he's laying in bed wondering what's going to happen once he's gone. He's worried and anxious about what's going to happen. He's probably seen um, the Assyrian the Assyrians be dismantled, the Egyptians be dismantled, the, uh, Judea he's, is being dismantled, and he's probably wondering what's going to happen to our kingdom once I'm gone. He's fearful. And so what he does is he grabs these team of people, right? The wisest of the wise in the Babylonian kingdom. And the reason this is so important is because in, in ancient times, right, dreams were very important to kingdoms, right? A dream was thought to uh, be the shadow of future events. So a king's dream had significance for the nation as a whole. And the interpretation was important so that the king might take steps to be ready for the events the dream anticipated, or even to counteract them if needed. And so what we see is he grabs this team of magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and Chaldeans. I've labeled them the dream team. It's a dad joke. It's the best of the best. I came up with that myself, actually. I was, super, I was really excited about it. Um, so thank you for laughing. Um, so we've got magicians who, uh, that word could mean kind of scholars, someone who's really wise. It could also mean a fortune teller, maybe even both meanings in this scenario. Then we've got enchanters who are really the astrologers, right? Stargazers, the one who uh, uses horoscopes to map out the stars to predict the future, try to predict the future. We've got sorcerers who, um, they were mediums, ones who talk to the dead or spiritualists. And then we have the Chaldeans who they were part of, at one, one time the Chaldeans were just a part of the Babylonian Empire. Now that word was used to express those who uh, were experts in magic lore and interpreting dreams. And he brings this group together. They are the best at this in human terms. I have two sons, and my youngest son told me recently, he said, something happened, and he cuddled up next to me. He said, Daddy, you're the best. <laughs> Proud moment. A couple days later, he did it again. I did something for him, and he cuddled up next to me. He said, you're the best. And it just warmed my heart. But then I heard him say that to my wife as well. <laughs> and I, I confronted him about it. Because there can only be one best. I said, Sunder, I thought daddy was the best. He said, well, mommy is the first best. And Sunder's the second best, and Larkin's the third best, and daddy's the last best. 
I'm the last best. It means a lot less than being the best. But not these guys. These guys, as far as the Babylonian like, empire was concerned, the kingdom, they were the best of the best in human terms. According to King Nebuchadnezzar, they knew what needed to happen. He brought them together because he was terrified. He was upset. He was, he was scared. You know, people do that today, you know. They seek humanity to give them the answers for the future. They look to um, whatever it may be, media outlets. They look to uh, our government. They look to social media. They look to whatever it may be, the occult practices. I mean, they look to anything. And let me tell you, it is a dangerous thing to look to anything outside of God for your future. If you're not trusting God for your future and his word, then you're looking in the wrong places. So here we have this team. and We get to Daniel 2, verse 4. Uh, and this team, the dream team, they say to the king, king, show us his dream and we'll show you the interpretation. That's not an unreasonable request. This is how it works. The Chaldeans, actually, uh, what I've come to find out is that the Chaldeans had like this library of manuals based on uh, past history of dreams. And so as somebody would dream a dream, they would write down their dream and then they would map out how that person's life ended. And then there was another guy who had a dream, and it was similar to this one. And so they would, every portion of the dream had some sort of definition. And so what they could do in human terms was like, they could take someone's dream, and as best they could, they could kind of piece it together. This dream normally means that, and really it was a bunch of baloney. It was fluff. But that's what they would do. But they needed the dream to be able to do that. Um, and the, the king's response wasn't what they wanted at all. Right? The king looks at them and says, the word from the king is firm. Right? It's unwavering. This is set in stone. This is what's going to happen. You are going to tell me not only the interpretation of the dream, but you're going to tell me the details of that dream. Which is a move they'd never seen before in history. It was a king that wouldn't give them the dream. And, and some commentators, right, commentators are split over this. Some commentators uh, believe that King Nebuchadnezzar really couldn't remember all of the details of the dream, that maybe he knew a few parts, but he couldn't remember it all. And so he was legitimately like, he didn't know the details of the dream and he needed this, this team to tell him. Other commentators, uh, which, which is probably where I would land, um, believe that he knew the dream, but because he knew the inner workings of what happened there, he knew how the fluff that this team would produce just to satisfy him, he wanted to make sure they were true and trustworthy and right. So he said, no, if you can come up with this, then you can surely come up with an answer. I mean, he knew them. 
He said, you show me the dream. And then he said, you have two options, right? You can give me the dream and, and its interpretation, and you will receive gifts and honor in the kingdom. Or you cannot, and I will tear you limb from limb and turn your houses into dung hills, outhouses. We'll go to the bathroom in your house. And so, so then this team takes some time, comes back to him, rather quickly, I'm sure, and tries to reason with the king a second time. Oh, come on, king. Um, surely this isn't something that the king would request from us, right? King, if you just tell us this dream, then, uh, then we, can, we can get you the interpretation. The king's getting frustrated now. No, nah, he's not getting frustrated. He is getting, he's a whirling dervish of anger. He's mad. And he says, my word is firm. You've come to me a second time. You're trying to buy time. And I'm not going to have it. I don't trust you and your ways. You better tell me the dream and its interpretation or you know what's going to happen. And I was thinking about this. And I think parents should have a similar approach to their kids. No, hear me out. My child comes to me. I don't know if I should say this or not. Child comes to me, and I say to him, Larkin, you need to clean your room and make your bed. And he says, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm just going to sleep in my bed again tonight. There's no reason. Just, just give me some time. I'll, I'll do it. I'll, I'll do. No. You do it. I'm going to give you two options. You clean your room. You make your bed right now, and I will give you a place at our dinner table and a very small allowance. But if you don't, right now, I will tear you limb from limb. (laughs) And I will turn your bedroom into the bathroom we have always wanted. That's one of those clips you'll see on Facebook, just that. (laughs) What is this preacher saying? So this is, we have an angry king who wants answers. And then we get like to, um, to one of the coolest parts of the chapter, in my opinion, and that's verse 10. And we're going to read that, uh, we're going to read that together. Verse 10, um, God's word says, The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. Let's stop there for a second. In their stupidity, they were so right, weren't they? There's not a man on earth in flesh that can meet the king's demand. You see, up until this point, they needed that dream to be able to interpret it. They, and they were, they were cheats. They were liars. The king knew that they had only won in, the, in the history, like, they had only won by cheating. 
My notes say, insert Super Bowl joke here. But I'm not. Let's move on. There's not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand, for no great and powerful king has asked such a great, such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. Verse 11, the thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. The dream team's view of their false gods was that their false gods were very powerful, but not personal. No one can do this, king, except for a divinely inspired miracle, the supernatural. And their false gods, they were false, They weren't true. They weren't going to come down and tell them the answer. They weren't going to dwell with them and and give them what they needed. They were powerful and they could do, but they weren't personal. Aren't you glad that we serve a God who is both powerful and personal? See, they had no idea what that looked like, what that felt like, what that was. Aren't you glad that we serve a God who is a shepherd who would go out of his way to reach you? The one. I was listening to a pastor recently who talked about the big picture of the Bible. God with us. Our students are going through a series called God with us right now. Looking at the big picture from Genesis to Revelation is God desiring a relationship with you and me. A personal God. They're false gods. They had no idea what that looked like. But that's not what Isaiah 57 says. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is a contrite and lowly spirit. Psalm 34, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Over and over in God's word, we see the promise that our God isn't only a creator God, a holy God, a righteous God that that sits up and through the stars in the sky and created the earth. He's also a very personal God that knows you, that loves you, and wants a personal, intimate relationship with you. That should be encouraging to us, church. And in the midst of our circumstances that are out of our control, we know that we serve a God who is in control. God with us. The story of the Bible, when he created uh, the world, and Adam and Eve, he formed them to have a relationship with them, to walk in the garden with them. And man turned their back on him when they ate the fruit. They sinned. God wasn't done with his creation. He had a plan. He redeemed the the Israelites, his chosen people, out of Egypt. They set up the temple. Why? God with us. The tabernacle, sorry. Then they go on and sets up the temple, right? 
God with us. And then in the most unbelievable part of God's word, uh, God in, takes on a robe of flesh and comes to earth. Why? God with us. And then as he, Christ is <laughs> died on the cross, he rose again, as he's going, he sends a comforter to live in us. Why? God with us. And one day Christ is going to come again because God with us. This is the story of God's word. He is not just a powerful God, but he is a very personal God. God with us. And, what, and one of the things I love about this is like, hey, the gods don't, this, this team, the gods don't dwell in, in, with us. And just wait till next week when we see not three, but four men in the fiery furnace. Isn't that a cool way that God would use to, sh to show that he is a God that dwells with his people? So now the story's getting good because we know that there's a dream, right? The king has a dream and that his team can't fulfill what he wants him to fulfill. They can't give him his dream and in the interpretation. And so Daniel steps in and this is his response. Chapter one set the stage, told us his, his abilities and here he is. His moment to be used for God's purposes and God's plan and God's mission. This is Daniel's response. Verse 12. Because of the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out and the wise men were about to be killed and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. So the king was not only angry but angry and very furious. And because of this, he commands that, he says that all the wise men in, in Babylon were to be killed. Now Daniel and his friends, because they were in the court, because of what they did, they were a part of this group. So they were going to be killed if God doesn't step in and do something miraculous. Anger does not know limits, and King Nebuchadnezzar was angry. This isn't completely unusual, as we know other kings who wiped out complete groups that upset them. And he was about to do the same. Um, and then we've got Daniel's response to this. And, and if we step back, we can kind of see that God's got a plan and God has a man for a crisis time. The stage was set, and it was set to show the reality, the wisdom, and the power of the one true God, Yahweh. As over and against the inarticulate and impotent imaginary gods, the magicians worshipped. It's the same general theme that, dom that, that dominates the rest of the book, um, and serves to remind the Hebrew nation that despite their own failures, their collapse, their banishment into exile, that the God of Israel remains as powerful remain, as the days of Moses and that his covenantal love remains as steadfast toward them as, as it ever has been. 
And this is the way Daniel responds, verse 14. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch. Now, Arioch was the captain of the king's guard. This was the executioner. This was like this big, mean man who had gone out to kill the wise men. So he'd gone into Daniel's home or wherever they were, and Daniel responds with prudence and discretion. Daniel was a man of composure. While everyone else is panicking, while everyone else is going crazy, while the king's angry, people are probably flipping out and frazzled. They don't know what to do. Daniel is calm under fire. And he says, Arioch, why is the why is this matter so urgent to the king? Can you picture this huge man that come, comes into to Daniel's place and, and wants to kill him and ends up sitting down and drinking tea? I don't, I don't know exactly. I've got, I know this is wrong probably, but I've got a picture of, you, have you ever watched the movie Tangled? Right? And there's this scene in Tangled that's like, um, I think it's like this like pub, right? And uh, there's all these mean, mean like looking guys. But they have a dream. Uh, he starts to sing, I'm malicious, mean, and scary. My sneer could curdle dairy. And violence-wise, my hands are not the cleanest. But despite my evil look and my temper and my hook, I've always yearned to be a concert pianist. I've got a dream. I've got a dream. See, I ain't as cruel and vicious as I seem. Though I do like breaking femurs, you can count me with the dreamers. Like everybody else, I've got a dream. So I picture, it's probably not a good picture of Arioch. But he sits down with Daniel, and because Daniel's calm demeanor begins to talk to Daniel, he gives Daniel this message, and he explains why this is happening and Daniel says, I need time before the king. And I need, because I can do this. So we see Daniel is a man of composure. He spoke reasonably. He spoke appropriately. He spoke with wisdom and discretion. He was calm, composed. He never panicked. And it, makes me ask the question, how do I react in times of uh, panic? How do I act, react uh, when things begin to fall apart? When things are out of my control? How do I react when uh, there's crisis? What's my character like under fire? When I get the scare of health news with my family? What is my reaction like? When I hear about things in the government and uh, with our leaders of the country, what, what, how do I react? Is it with prudence and discretion? While everyone else is panicky, do I have enough confidence and faith in a sovereign God to be calm? Or do I try to take things in my own hands? 
But not only is he a man of composure, it goes on in verse 16, right? He, instead of killing Daniel, Daniel gets a pass to see the king. I mean, Daniel is, is little Dan. I mean, he is a young man, upper teenager probably. And he has the confidence and the courage to enter before a king who's ready to wipe out a group of people because he's angry. I wonder if if at that moment Daniel thought back to the God-given ability he knew that he had. That God had given him ability to do just this and maybe this was his time for such a time as this. He said, if you just give me a little time, king, I'll I'll tell you the whole thing. And he's a man of courage, not because of his own strength, but because of his faith in the one true God who gives him strength. And so let's look at the first thing that Daniel does. Church, I don't want to miss this. This is huge for us, right? So he's got time. Let's look at what Daniel does when crisis hits. And the first thing we see in verse 17, he made the matter known to his friends and they sought mercy from the God of heaven. You know what that means? They prayed. They got on their knees and they prayed. The first thing Daniel does in the midst of crisis was that he gathers his friends and they prayed. He knows that if their lives were going to be spared, it was going to be spared by the one true God. And it was going to, be, it was going to have to be a miraculous intervention. Daniel was not only a man of composure and a man of courage, but he was a man of prayer. We'll see in the rest of the book where prayer gets him in trouble. He's still a man of prayer. Daniel's confidence was in God, so he immediately sought the Lord. They didn't go to their manuals. They didn't start studying the dream interpretations or the plans. They didn't run to get to go, whatever. They could have done all these things. They got on their knees and they began to pray, looking to God for answers. And let me tell you, church, I don't care how, I mean, Daniel, look at the abilities and the giftings that God had given him. He was good looking, he was wise, he was smart, he was gifted. But when crisis hits, the first place we've got to begin has to be on our knees. I don't care what gifts you have. I don't care how smart you are. I don't care how much money you have. The first place we go is on our knees. And, 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 and this makes me look in a mirror, right? It's, What is my reaction in times of crisis? When situations turn for the worse, do I I try to handle things on my own? Or do I go to my knees knowing that God is in control? To not only a God who is powerful, but a God who is also personal. And if I can encourage, um, if, I, if I could ever encourage you to be involved in a life group with friends that 
will gather around you and pray in times of crisis. This is it. And then in verses 19 through 23, like God gives Daniel both the dream and the interpretation, which Daniel knew was going to happen. And he takes the time to thank God in a psalm of praise and thankfulness. Because Daniel is not only a man of courage, composure, and prayer, but he's also a man of thankfulness. And he writes this beautiful psalm. Right? A hymn, a blessing to God, saying God, talking about God's character, how God is in control, how God is the wisest, how God places us in positions. If, if anyone is in a position, it's because God placed him there, whether it was king, whether it was him. And he writes this beautiful psalm, talking about his wisdom, his might, his omnipotence, God's knowledge, pointing the praise to God. It's a model psalm for us, verses 19 or 20 to 23. And then verses 24 and 25, Daniel went into Ariachan. He says, don't destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king. I'll show the king the interpretation. And, and look at the, it's interesting to note the differences between this man, Arioch, and Daniel. Because look at uh, Arioch brought in Daniel before the king, verse 25, in haste, and thus says to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. This was all about him. I, I found him. It's all about me, my promotion. And let's make mental note of that. the difference between the way Daniel reacts and the way Arioch reacts in this portion of the passage. And then before the king, Daniel's response was not just, king, I I have come up with your dream and the interpretation. No, he begins in verse 27. No wise man, enchanter, magician, or astrologer can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. He goes on in verse 29, the second half of 29. This mystery has has been revealed to me not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living. In contrast to, to Arioch, who wanted the glory for himself, we have Daniel, who is always quick to point to God and not give credit to himself. This is about God who controls and knows everything. This isn't about him. Daniel's gifted. He knows these things. God's given him the gifting, but he never takes the time to, uh, to, to point the glory to himself. He is always quick to give God the glory. A man in crisis. That man in crisis is not only a man uh, who is, has composure and courage and thankfulness and prayer, but he is a man of humility. But as for me, uh, King, I can't take credit for this. I'm no better than anyone else, but God is the revealer of secrets. And he's done it for his own purposes. His statement contrasts God's ability with the inability of any pagan wise man 
enchanter, magician, astrologer, any false god. Daniel's God shows himself superior by revealing to Daniel both the content and the interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. It was a radical contrast. And so here is Daniel before the king. And this last section, right, the interpretation. We don't have much time. Um, but Daniel, Daniel says, this is what your dream was as you're laying in bed at night, as you're anxious about what's going to happen after you are gone. This is what you see, king. You see a, a great image that's terrifying. And the head is of gold, the stomach and arms of silver, the thighs of bronze, the legs of iron, and the feet are a mixture of iron and clay. And as you looked, a stone that was not cut from human hands struck the image and broke the image in pieces. It was all broken. The wind carried it away. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the entire earth. I can only imagine what the king was doing at this moment. Do you think he's scooting up in, into his seat? Finally, someone who told him exactly what he had dreamed. And he goes on. Daniel goes on. He said, King Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold. That had to make an arrogant king feel great. But you didn't get there on your own. The God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the might, and the glory to you, king. You see, God had given great dominion, power, glory to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar ruled it ruthlessly. The head of gold was a fitting description. But then there were other kingdoms. The chest and arms of silver, we believe, was the Medo-Persia Empire established by Cyrus. Then, then the thighs of bronze was Greece under Alexander the Great. And as we walk through history, we see how this was what was happening. Then you have the legs of iron, the Roman Empire. An unstoppable composite of different people who would not hold together. You'd eventually become a divided kingdom. The list of metals shows a progressive decrease in the value and splendor of the materials, but an increase in toughness and endurance. It was, some people believe that it was... It meant a decline in moral quality, but an increase in time that they lasted. And, and then he says, in the days of the kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. And this was the stone. Not cut from human hands. Humble beginnings. But would ultimately break those kingdoms apart. And would rule the entire world. And you and I both know that that stone is the kingdom of Christ. And the point of the dream was not only to give details of the future, but for the king to know that the one true God holds the world in his hands and holds the future in his hands. That God was 
working behind the scenes, that there was hope that ultimately and eventually, yes, maybe kings would reign for a period, but ultimately God's kingdom reigns. We win. We see in Luke 20, right, the, the stone that the builders rejected become the cornerstone. We know that, that God is sovereign, he's in control despite present and, and current conditions and his kingdom through Christ will reign forever. And in this news, King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face, paid homage to Daniel. He recognized and honors, honored Daniel's God and promised Daniel and his friends uh, within the Babylonian court to raise them up, to giving them further opportunity and an even bigger platform to shine his light. In a one minute, so what? It's a long passage. We didn't get into a lot of the interpretation of the dream. Ultimately, Christ reigns. God's kingdom will reign supreme. It's crazy that that at this point in history, God unveiled the unraveling of all these kingdoms that lined up perfectly, and then Christ's kingdom. And for us today, we look at a man who God could count on in times of crisis. What about us? When things begin to fall apart, what is our response? What is our reaction? Do we go to him in prayer? Or do we try to handle it on our own? Do we think we've got it taken care of? Or do we look to God who is in control? Do you trust God or do you just say that you do? Can you be calm and collected in times of crisis because of the confidence you have in a sovereign God? The second thing is that we can rest in the fact that God is a personal God who knows and cares for us. God with us. And as you face crisis, as you face trials, as you face uh, bad news, We have the hope of a God who's not only powerful, but he is very personal. And he dwells with us. He cares about us. And then, thirdly, we can have hope that God's kingdom through Christ will prevail over all other kingdoms. It will triumph, and he wins. And the reason he wins is because of the stone, Jesus Christ was born a miraculous birth, lived a perfect life, died a sinless death for me and for you. But death couldn't hold him. The grave couldn't hold him. Three days later, he rose from the grave, defeating death. And to accept his gift of salvation is to simply believe in him. Believe that we're a sinner in need of a savior and that he... He is our sacrifice. He paid our punishment. He took our place on the cross of Calvary. And accepting him into your life. Turning to him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, uh, 
Thank you for your word. Thank you for um, what you're doing. And I pray that you will reign supreme, not only in the world, but in our lives. Father, like Daniel, I pray that we will be men and women of composure, of courage, of prayer, of thankfulness, of humility, not because our gifts and our passions and our abilities, but because of who you are and our faith in you, God, who hold everything in your hands. And when we get that news, God, when we see what's going on around us, when trial hits and crisis hits, may we trust in a God who reigns supreme, as Daniel did. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.